Denise Lopez, and I do the coffee bar, and I also greet. So um, I've been doing it for four years, and uh, the reason why I do it is because uh, one time uh, uh, Greg, the pastor, was talking about volunteering at different areas in our church, and I just felt very strong about greeting. So that's what I started doing at first, and then I believe they asked me to do the coffee bar, so I decided that I would do both. And I truly enjoy it, and I feel like, you know, I'm giving back to uh, God because He gives me so much, and He's just really good to me, and I'm very blessed to be in this church with all these you know, wonderful people. Our pastors are awesome. And so, I mean, that's all I can say. That's awesome, huh? I lo- yeah. I love seeing people finding their place, using the gifts that God has given them to God's glory. Praise God. Well, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is uh, this next week, next Saturday, uh, if you haven't uh, 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 RSVP'd or, or paid uh, for next Saturday, I encourage you to do so. We're doing, in this room, we're doing an Old Testament walk through the Bible. And I did this uh, same Old Testament walkthrough uh, back uh, about 40 years ago. Uh, it's hard to uh, imagine that that happened that long ago when I'm only 29, but, you know, it happens. And uh, so uh, uh, I found that in my time in seminary, nothing gave me a handle on the overall picture of, uh, uh, of the Old Testament like that walkthrough did. And I still have the notes for that. I still use them on a regular basis uh, when I'm trying to put something together. And when I go to Tanzania, one of the things I do with pastors is teach a survey of the Old Testament, a survey of the New Testament to help them to see the big picture. And a lot of it is because of what I benefited from, uh, from that Old Testament walkthrough. Encourage you to sign up, be with us next Saturday morning from 9 to 12 in in this room. And uh, we'd love to have you there. All you have to do is go online uh, on our church website, or uh, if you get the uh, emails, you can go to one of those. So uh, as we get into God's word, let's uh, pray together. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word, how it instructs us, how it encourages us, how it challenges us. And Father, I pray that we'd be a people who actually do your word. I mean, we worship you right now, and we sing your praises, but we don't want to be a people who just say the right things, but actually do them as well. And Father, we pray that your word would instruct us how Pray that your spirit would give us strength to do, and pray that you'd give us the will to step forward. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther, and so you want to turn to that book. Uh, We're going to be dealing with uh, chapter four, the whole chapter, but I'm going to give you an overview of the whole book because it's important to be able to understand chapter four in light of the whole book. Uh, Some of you uh, know Esther well. Some of you, it's, it's totally new. Uh, information for you. You haven't read that book. If you haven't, I want to encourage you this week, read the book of Esther or get on your phone and turn to the book of Esther and let it speak it to you. Or Adventures in Odyssey has a pretty good little rendition of it. Uh, (laughs) Just saying. I listened to it years ago and it was, uh, it's a fun way to uh, get the scriptures and they stay very close to the text, very true to the text. So, uh, 
As we think about, the reason I picked Esther was because I was thinking about this idea of finding your place, that we want to find our place. And one of the statements that stands out in chapter 4 that drove me to this text, and I want us to look at it now, is found in verse 14. In verse 14 it says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That phrase, such a time as this, got me to really meditating on, here's Esther and, and that time frame that she lived in. The time frame she lived in was right before Ezra sent the second return. There were three returns back to Israel. The first one had already happened, Zerubbabel, in the first six chapters of Ezra, and went back and rebuilt the temple, or at least got it started. We see some of the, uh, the uh, minor prophets, the post-exilic prophets, talking about saying, hey, you need to finish the job. You started it, but you didn't finish. And so you see that with the last three of the Old Testament. But this happens right after they get it started, but before Ezra shows up and begins to rebuild the people and before Nehemiah shows up and begins to rebuild the walls. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the time frame. You'll see that it starts off and it's talking about Ahasuerus, if you've got an ESV, if you've got an NIV, it's Xerxes. And you go, which one is it? Well, it's the same guy. He just has a Greek name and a Persian name, and so it depends on which version, uh, uh, which one they used. The Septuagint translated it even Artaxerxes. Xerxes I was a guy who, uh, you realize, he was a Persian ruler, and so Babylon had already gone away. Persia had already taken over. And then Cyrus makes a decree, the people start going back, but here's some people that have stayed back. And, and some people have thought, you know, these people were in sin because they didn't start going back to Israel. They didn't start going. But here's the thing that I thought, even this, this last week, God retained Esther and Mordecai in Babylon because if he had not, those who had gone to Israel, part of the Persian empire at that point, would have been killed just like the ones that were in Susa. All the 127 provinces would have been impacted. And God delivered through Esther and Mordecai. I don't believe that they were in sin. I believe it was the providence of God. Interestingly, I say the providence of God because this book does not mention God by name. And, you, and the question is, why not? That's a question that, that I, I read a number of different commentaries. Everybody goes, beats me. I mean, bottom line, they gave it you know, a more academic speak, but... That's really what we're saying. They're saying we don't have a clue. But when I was reading the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, I know that he's writing to a Jewish audience because he doesn't explain things and he, and he refers to a lot of Jewish isms. When you read some of the other gospels, things are explained and you realize they're not writing typically to Jewish audiences. And so I thought, huh, somehow the author of Esther Perhaps Mordecai, as the author, was writing to a, an audience that didn't hold to the God of the Jews, didn't hold to Yahweh, didn't hold to prayer. And so he makes allusions to everything. I mean, it's very obvious when you see it. I mean, God, is, his fingerprints are all over this book, even though his name's not mentioned. His sovereignty is all over the place. It's not coincidence. And you see fasting, but you don't see prayer mentioned. And yet they always go together. And so you realize the author was very astute in his audience, and yet he didn't back down from the important things. He makes it clear 
And when you read the book, in fact, some of the, uh, the Jews, in, and especially in Germany in 70 AD, when they're trying to decide which books are the books of the Old Testament, you know, they're, they're still trying to make that determination, even though it was pretty clear which ones were. They were looking at Esther and going, ah, it doesn't mention God. Maybe it's not included. But they included it because God is so obviously present in the book. And so we have Esther. Let me tell you a little bit of the beginning of the story. I'm not going to tell you the end. I want you to read it. So I'm not going to do any spoiler at the end if you haven't read it yet. Even if you have, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the end either. But uh, so, we, so it starts out, Esther is during this time frame in the kingdom of Persia. She's a godly woman who is uh, just going about her own business, having a, you know, just an ordinary life, right? And then there's three feasts that happen in the book. Xerxes' feast, Esther's feast, Feast of Purim. That gives you the structure of the book. Xerxes' feast, first chapter and a half. Esther's feast starts in the middle of the second chapter, goes all the way through chapter seven. I mean, she takes up most of the book. Her feasts are, are a big deal, a big part of the, the story. And then the Feast of Purim. And that last one is possibly the reason for the, the writing of this book to explain why do we have this uh, holiday called Purim? Why do we do that? And so the whole book gives the story. And so here we are with Esther. Uh, she is not on the scene at the beginning. Xerxes has a feast. He wants his, his queen wife after 180 days of feasting and then another seven, he wants to show her off and she's not wanting to come. And so she's out. You know, patriarchal society, just the way it was. She's out, wants a new queen in. And the interesting thing, even in a patriarchal society, Esther, God uses a woman to change the fate of the Jews. I mean, amazingly, you look at this, how God has used her in a powerful way. So, you know, the king, Xerxes, decides that he's going to get rid of Vashti, and he looks for another queen, and guess what? Lo and behold, by coincidence, you believe that? No. Not coincidence. Esther is the one chosen. Esther, who was a godly woman, who was, a, uh, was raised by her cousin Mordecai. He was like a father to her. And so Mordecai and Esther, and in fact, you, you wonder, you know, the book is named Esther. She's the focal point, right? But she didn't do it alone. She had Mordecai, and they worked together. And I was thinking about, and was, that was one of the reasons why I chose Esther, and it really stood out to me, because I'd always preached this before, really focused on Esther, not so much on Mordecai. I was going to preach on Mordecai this time, and I realized I can't speak about Mordecai without speaking about Esther. They go together. And it made me think of the body of Christ, how we find our place, and whether it's, it's to, to serve as a greeter, or whether it's to serve as a teacher, or whether, whatever it is that God has for you and how he's gifted you, we all need one another. We don't do this in isolation. We don't serve the Lord by ourselves. That's a, there's a reason for the body of Christ. And it really stood out to me as I looked at, at Mordecai and Esther. And so here Esther is. She... Uh, starts out and she's now the queen of the land. Uh, and then there's a, a seemingly an aside. And this aside is uh, in chapter uh, two where Mordecai finds out. And it's interesting because you think, how does he find out? He's got some sort of secret source. 
And we're not sure what that source is, but somehow he finds out that there are two guys, Big Than and Teresh, two eunuchs of the king. They were ticked at the king. They're going to kill him. Now think about that. Two guys want to kill the king. Do you think they told a lot of people? Probably not. So whoever Mordecai's source is, 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 he's a deep cover source, right? I mean, he knows... And it doesn't say that he found it out supernaturally. He found out somehow. He finds this out, tells Esther, uh, saves the king's life. They hang these two guys on the gallows and, and they write it, you know, just kind of the end of the chapter it goes and, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles of the Presence of the King. Kind of just an almost nondescript statement. End of chapter two. And then you find Haman. Now, in Jewish congregations, every time around Purim, what they'll typically do is, is you boo and you hiss whenever the name Haman is mentioned. If you all want to do that this morning, I'm good with that. But, uh, <laughs> and then they would cheer and they even have noisemakers whenever, you know, uh, Mordecai or Esther are mentioned, you know, it's a yay, you know, good, yay for the good guys, right? And so uh, Haman shows up, boo, hiss, yeah. <laughs> You can even hiss if you want to, although don't spit on any of us. But, uh, you know, maybe booze better. But uh, so you think about this, and Haman, he is an, uh, 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 hates the Jews. He wants to kill them. And, he, and because he wants to kill them, we see this in chapter 3, he makes a deal with the king. Hey, I'll give you money if you let me kill the Jews. Because there's this one by the gate, this, this, this Jewish dude, and I, get, I guarantee you didn't say his name. Because King Xerxes didn't know that that was the reason. Here's the guy that saved the king's life, by the way, coincidentally. And he's not willing to bow before Haman. And Haman is ticked. This guy's not, yeah, boo. I need to pause after I say Haman, right? Yeah, there we go. And so he is really ticked. He, he wants Mordecai dead because he won't bow to him. Everybody else is bowing. He's not bowing. It's, he's not happy. 10,000 talents of silver, he promises King Xerxes. What is 10,000 talents? It sounds like a lot, right? I actually did the math this morning because I went, what is a talent? I'm going to preach on this. So what is a talent? Talent's 75 pounds. Hmm. Times 10,000. 375 tons. At the current rate of silver, about $200 million. I mean, you know, the king's not going to turn his nose up at $200 million at 10,000 talents of silver. And so for money, which seems to be to the king the only reason he allowed it, for money, he's, once the, Jew, the Jews are going to be wiped out, makes an edict, cannot be revoked. Cannot be changed. That's why you got to read the end of the story. Wait a minute. How, how do they survive? They survived, right? I mean, think about the evilness of this plan. This wasn't just Haman's plan. It was Satan's plan. You can boo there too if you want. Right? Because the promises of God, of a Messiah, was through the line of David of the nation of Israel. That's pretty sobering. This book 
shows how God saved our Messiah from destruction to keep the promises of God. It's not a small book. It's huge. The story is amazing. And so, the deal is struck. Haman sits down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. End of chapter 3. Now here's the thing. Before we get any further into the story, I want us to think about this statement. Who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this? What time? A time when the Jews were going to be destroyed. A time when the people of Israel were some in the land and some, many of them still back in formerly Babylon, now Persia. So I asked the question. Because when I, read the, when I read the scriptures, I know that they're intended for me to have a takeaway, right? And in fact, Paul says this in Romans 15, 4, that the scriptures were written of old, that through encouragement and perseverance of the scriptures, you might have hope. So I'm reading this story that I might have hope that there are people who are there for such a time as this and really that is every one of us. Because we have to ask ourselves, why am I here in the 21st century? Why wasn't I born 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? Why wasn't I born in the Roman Empire? Why was I born in, in America rather than some other part of the world? Why was I born in a place where I could have opportunity? Why was I born in, a, in, a, in Texas? I mean, it's God's country, right? Uh, that's a no-brainer, but... Uh, <laughs> but you think about why, why, why? You were born, I was born for such a time as this. What time? I mean, we can all look at our country, we can all look at our world and say, man... Man, we got our list, right, of things that we'd say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You were born for such a time as this to make a difference where we're planted. And that difference is not a me difference, it's a God difference. By the providence of God, he has a plan for me, he has a plan for you, he wants us to carry it out, and we don't carry it out by just sitting in our seats. We carry it out by getting involved. I remember when I was uh, taking one of my favorite courses from one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, Bible Study Methods. And he, t- he gave us an assignment. It was a simple assignment. Count pages, you know, in books. So we're supposed to go to the library, not check the book out, but just kind of pull it off the shelf and count pages. How many pages are devoted to observation in this Bible study book? How many pages are devoted to interpretation. Usually interpretation is where we start, which is not the place to start. We say, what does it mean? And the real question is, no, what does it say? Then we can figure out what it means. And then the third part of the assignment was write down everything that has to do with application in this Bible study book and look at about 50 books. So you're sitting there flipping through the pages, counting pages, whatever. And what you found was, and, and, and is that about half the book or more was devoted to observation. Here's how to observe the text. Here's what to see, figures of speech, grammar, everything. And then another half of the book, here's how to interpret what you're looking at. And so it gives you other stuff. 
And then application was like that in almost every book. It was like you pull over these pages and you go like 10 pages. No wonder we're so big on being very smart and intellectual Christians and we don't do much with what we got. We were born for such a time as this. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what Paul said, my little children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, Galatians 4.19. He wants Christ to be formed in us. And it's going to be formed in us. Jesus acted. We need to act. And we were born for such a time as this. You know, I was, uh, uh, I love the series, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien. In fact, I loved reading it back in the, you know, 70s. Uh, uh, you know, don't do the math. <sighs> and I loved the series when it came to the big screen. Now there's a new series, uh, The Ring of Power, I think. And uh, it, it's very different. They're taking, it's supposed to be a prequel. They're taking a whole different worldview than Tolkien's original worldview. So there's a lot of disappointment from people watching it. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt or, or at least see it as it doesn't really fit everything. But I love that series. And I remember there's a couple of quotes that you're going to hear me do today. This is one of them. When Frodo is, you know, he's, he's kind of wistfully thinking, I wish it need not have happened in my time. I wish that I didn't have to go through this. I wish I didn't have to carry the ring. I mean, his, just his, that whole thing. And Gandalf responded, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. That's our choice. What do we do with the time? And we look at a book like Esther and it gives us hope. We need to act. We need to be those who get involved. We need to be those who do whatever it is he asks us to do. And as we do it together as a body of Christ, God's going to make an impact and make a difference in this world. And we don't live our, this life for me. We don't live this life for us. And if we think about it, if we were to take and, and look at our life, how much of our time is devoted to family? How much of our time is devoted to work? How much is time devoted to application of God's word? I'm afraid that we might find the same thing in that assignment that I saw. And that doesn't need to be. We need to be those who live what we believe. How much more worshipful is that than even the songs that we sing to the Lord? We say, oh, I worship you, and then walk out of here and, and treat one another poorly. You kind of go, whoa, wait a minute. I need to sing about God. And then I need to live the same way where my life glorifies him. And he is honored and glorified by how I live my life. And so we come to Esther. I just love her life. I love who she is. We didn't have the scriptures read this morning, but we're going to read through the text. And I'm going to want to talk through it a little bit. In verse 1 of chapter 4, and I encourage you to turn there and follow along. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, what had been done? 10,000 talents. $200 million given for the destruction of the Jews. 
Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Some say that that was a pagan thing that they would do, that somehow there was a cult of the dead. The reality is, no, it's not. He wouldn't have done that. He wasn't playing that game. And you see this even in, in other places before Esther where sackcloth and ashes were put on. It was something that was done in ancient times but with different meaning for, for some. And I guarantee you that as a, as a good Jewish person, it wouldn't have been for any other reason than for Yahweh himself. It says he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This guy was not uh, someone who was willing, you know, somebody who was going to just retire and be shy and be silently killed. He was going to be someone who spoke out. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Why would he go to the king's gate? So the king would see it. So the king passing by would see what has happened. So Haman passing by. And Haman would probably, oh, Haman. He would probably gloat as he was watching what was going on. He would probably go, yeah, you're going to get yours. When he saw Mordecai standing there and everybody else bowing. It says, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Why is that? No one was allowed to be sad in the king's presence. We find that from Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, he goes sad in the king's presence in Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, uh, the king notices and he was very much afraid. And we have one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Then I prayed and then I said. He says he prayed and then he said. I mean, it's just like, it must have been a quick prayer. Lord, help me now. <laughs> I'm either coming to you or you're going to, you know, help me out here. It says in every province... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached the Jews, or, or reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them laying in sackcloth and ashes. They're crying out to God. You ever had those moments where you're just crying out to God? You don't even know what to say necessarily. You're just saying, Lord, help me. Help me. That's all you can think to say, Lord, I need your help. I don't even know how to pray. And I love Romans 8 where it says, when we don't know how to pray as we ought to. Man, that's a verse you should put there, Romans 8, 28. When, uh, when you don't, we don't, uh, 26, huh? Anyway, you'll have to look it up. <laughs> where he says, when we don't know how to pray as we should, this Holy Spirit inter himself intercedes for us with groans and utterings too deep for words. Just know, when you don't know what to say, the Spirit's speaking. Speaking to, uh, and, and on our behalf. It says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, somehow they knew. They knew, they had seen Mordecai showing up every day. Whenever uh, she was going, getting ready to go before the king, he would show up every day to encourage well, it says the queen was deeply distressed. She apparently didn't know, as we read a little bit further, all that had been done. She didn't certainly know the reason for it, that, that money was paid to the king for this. And so her response was she sent garments to clothe Mordecai. You kind of go, what? That almost seems random. She sent clothes? What kind of clothes? Probably royal garments. Why? probably so he could enter the king's gate and he could talk to her face to face or 
I mean, here's a guy that saved the king. He probably could get an audience with the king. So maybe to enter in and be able to talk to the king. So she sent garments to clothe them so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And some would say, ah, he didn't accept them because he was afraid that she was going to make him go talk to the king. I don't think that was the case because they both don't seem that sort. When you read the book, you realize, I mean, he, he's standing there publicly proclaiming, you know, hey, something needs to be done here. There's an injustice that's happened. So I don't think it's because he's just kind of passing the buck off on Esther. And so we have uh, him not accepting the clothes. He'd think, well, maybe he, you know, maybe there was some other reason. I think the reason was he wanted to keep it before everybody. There's an injustice that's been done. Then Esther called out for, and you see this word here, and it looks like hathach, right? It's actually hatak, if you want to pronounce it correctly. It says, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been, we'll call him Hat, uh, who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hatak goes to Mordecai. Apparently she didn't know anything about it. In the open square in the city in front of the king's gate, in other words, this is where all the city could see. Uh, some have said this was the marketplace. So he's standing in the, uh, you know, at the local uh, uh, Kroger's and he's, he's, you know, he's standing in front of it and he's you know, in sackcloth and ashes and saying the injustice has been done. Hatak, or Hat, went out to Mordecai. He speaks and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money. In other words, his source somehow came through again because I guarantee it wasn't on the, uh, on the flyer that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction. So in other words, he gave, he wanted to make sure she had physical evidence. Here's what's going on. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. Is that mansplaining there going on? Is she smart enough to be able to understand what's going on? Yeah, I think she was. Smart, smart person. And so why did he explain it? Because she wouldn't have known those details that he knew about the money that was been, and been given. Maybe she didn't read Persian, so she couldn't even read the decree. I don't know. We don't know that. But somehow it was explained to her and here it says, and command her to go to the king. Now, it's interesting when you read that, you think, ah, she's being told what to do. No, it, it was kind of a mutual thing. Because you see in verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So they were going back and forth. They were, they were talking to one another. They were trying to figure this thing out, but not being able to do it face to face. He commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak, Hat, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hat and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, in other words, you should know this too, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. This was typical in an ancient court to, to uh, uh, have to appeal or to do in writing an appeal for an audience with the king. And it was in part because of they wanted, it would protect the king from assassination. So somebody didn't just run in the court, they would just kill him immediately and then ask him questions later, right? Well, you know that Mordecai knew this, so she wasn't telling some. I mean, she was telling him something he already knew. So why was she telling him this? Some commentators would say, oh, she told him this because she was afraid. She didn't want to do it. I don't think that's the case. She doesn't strike me as that kind of person when you read the, I mean, because right after this, he says, well, uh, you know, if you don't, you know, uh, you're going to be killed, your whole family. And she was immediately like, hey, I'm willing to do this. I'm ready to go for it. She didn't hesitate. So why is she asking the question? I think they're strategizing. I think she's telling him, now you realize what you're asking me to do, right? Here's the, here's the, the, the law. And if I go in and he doesn't extend the scepter, you're, it's on you. You've got, you're, you're the only one that can protect the Jews at that point. And I think he's, he's going, yeah, I know that, but I think you're the, the person. Why is that? If he goes before the king, Haman... It's going to know who he is, know that he's Jewish, talk to the king, tell the king, yeah, this guy, you know, uh, he's, 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 he's not who you think he is, and he's going to try to downplay it. He's going to get in the king's ear, whatever. After all, he's just given him, you know, 10,000 talents of, gold, of silver. But he has no clue, because she's kept it secret, that she is also Jewish. And that she's related to Mordecai. And that he raised her like a daughter. He has no clue. So she goes before. Yeah, she takes this initial risk. But the strategy probably isn't going to be more effective. I think that's what's going on here. And you see this back and forth between two very intelligent people. Two very godly people who care about the protection of the Jewish people. And so they're trying to figure this thing out. It's a journey they've never taken before and they're trying to figure out where do we go with this? And she's saying, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. That's something Mordecai might not have known. Is she on the outs? Is for some reason the king displeased with her? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been married 42 years. And there's only one time, yeah, praise God for that, yeah? Praise God. I got a very forgiving wife, I can tell you that, because <laughs> I mess up a lot. And when we were gone this summer for 30 days, that's the longest we'd ever been apart, I, I, I talked to her every time I could get a signal on my phone when I was in country in Tanzania. I, I couldn't wait to get back. We love each other. We like being together. And so for her to not be called his wife, his queen, for 30 days, something was going on. And so she wants Mordecai to know, hey, she didn't call me, you know, this could be dicey. So how does he respond? Then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any other Jews. I don't think he's getting on to her. He's just kind of figuring this out. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. If she had said no to the Lord, we wouldn't be reading a book titled Esther. It would be titled something else. Maybe Mordecai. Because many think that he, he may have written this. Because it had to be somebody that was close to the situation. Maybe it would have been named another woman's name. Uh, that, that was the queen. That became the queen after Esther because she said no. I, I don't know. But I do know that, that, that he believed God's going to protect his people. He's going to do it through you or somebody else. But, but she had certain death if she didn't do anything. She might die if she goes and appears before the king. And she's willing to do it. She's willing to take that step. And she says, and who know, he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days or nights, uh, three, three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. I mean, you think, wow, here's a spiritual godly woman. She's saying, okay, I'll do it. I want you praying. It doesn't mention prayer here, but it does mention fasting and prayer and fasting in scripture almost always go together. And so she's wanting prayer. She's wanting to beseech God. She's wanting a lot of people to pray for her. This is not just something she's going, okay, I'm the one going to be the king and, you know, see you guys later. Hope I make it. No, she's like, we're all in this together. You need to pray for me because I'm going on behalf of the nation. And the interesting thing is, she says, I and my young women will also fast as you do. These young women were assigned to her and I'm guessing that she had such a life that she influenced them to proselyte or to become Jewish, or at least in their, in their faith, to worship, the, worship Yahweh. She says, then I will go to the king. I mean, that, just that simple statement, I will go to the king. Though it is against the law. In other words, the law says no, and I know my God is telling me Yes. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. For such a time as this, I'm not going to ruin the rest of the book for you, except to say it turns out well. We see the Feast of Purim at the end of the book, chapters 8 through 10. It's a celebration of what God has done. And so I, I come back to us and I think we are born for such a time as this. We can't sit quiet. We can't sit still. We need to be those who, who, who step forward and do what God has asked us to do. And that means that we serve in the body of Christ. We serve where we're planted. And that together we reach this world for Christ. There are things that we do that will scare us. There are things that we do that we feel ill-equipped to do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, th- uh, going to Pakistan and, 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 and doing some, some uh, teaching there of, of Pakistani pastors and then some other things as well. I, I'm looking at going to uh, Tanzania and returning there in Uganda to teach pastors to do medical. And, and, and as I've mentioned before, God has uh, uh, laid on my heart to, to, get, to see if I can help Tanzania get some better, better medical care. In different areas, different hospitals. I mean, I, I just, the question in my mind was, uh, 
they need a world-class hospital. And God is opening some doors. And, and here I am. I'm not a medical type. And yet I'm, I'm taking a step in an, in an unknown area. Scares me a little bit, but I, I watch God working. I don't know what's going to happen. It could all fall apart. But I don't think it will. God is asking us to do some things that maybe we feel ill-equipped. We feel like the last person on the planet that should be doing whatever. And yet God's going, no, I, I want you to do this. Before Esther became queen, she was a relative unknown, and so was Mordecai. And God raised them to prominence and used them. I don't know what God has in store for you, but I do know it's more exciting if you do it with the Lord. And it's, it's exciting and fun if you do it in the areas that you're gifted in. God has gifted you for a reason, for a purpose, and it's not just to, to promote yourself. It's not just to do your own thing. It's to do his thing. I promised you I'd read another quote from uh, Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite people is Sam Wisegamgee. Um, he's a, a, a fellow hobbit to Frodo. Uh, Sam Wisegamgee, one of my favorite scenes is whenever uh, uh, Frodo realizes that he's a danger to the rest of this team, this, the, the Fellowship of the Ring. And so he gets in this boat and he's, he's about halfway across this river and he's, he's leaving them all behind. And Sam figures it out and he's, he's running to the shore. And Frodo says, I'm going away. And, he, and Sam goes, I know, I'm going with you. And he's still on the shore and the boat's floating away. And then he starts getting in the water. He goes, Sam, you can't swim. And he says, I got to come with you. And so then he sinks and Frodo pulls him up into the boat. And, 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 he, and Sam Wisecamp, she looks at him and says, I made a promise. That I, that I would not leave you. I made a promise. I love that scene. We all need those Sam Wisecamp she's in our life, don't we? Let's stick by us, thick or thin. Well, guess what? Jesus, better than Sam, never leave us, ever forsake us. Well, in another scene, Sam Wisegams, he's talking to Frodo. And he's talking about life. He says, Sam says, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. I mean, you ever thought that? But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Certainly Esther really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know, how, uh, know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. Frodo said, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam said, 
that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's worth fighting for. It's worth living for. It's worth being a part of that. And so when we ask you to serve and find your place, we're not just saying, oh, it's nice to have a, a place to, to, to be so that you feel a part. It's that we're part of some story that's been going on a long time. It's a big story. Jesus, the Savior of the world, it's huge. And we get to be a part of it. it Maybe a small part. It may be a part like Esther's or Mordecai's. You were born for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love. Jesus died in our place. What an amazing story that is. That's not just a small thing. That Jesus died for sinners. To pay the debt that we owed so that we could have eternal life and the glory of being with you one day where you are, and yet to enjoy you now, to be conformed to the image now of Christ. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be those who are content to sit around. I pray that we wouldn't be those who pass the buck. I pray that we would be those who smartly strategize about how we can effectively reach this world for Jesus. You've left it for us to do. You've asked us to do that. Lord, may we do that. And may you use the likes of us, maybe in a small, quiet way, greeting an individual that comes to church. And it may change their existence, their life, that someone cared for them. Maybe it's to impact a family member Lord, we don't know what it is. That, I don't know what it is that you have for each person here in this room, but you know. And I pray that they would walk with you. They would get up out of their seat, that they would fill out the card, that they would do what they need. They would go to, the, to find out where they can get involved. The central hub. Lord, I pray that you would use the likes of us together as a body to reach this world for you. I thank you for the opportunities that we have to reach other places in the world as well. Not only here locally uh, through Mansfield Mission Center and others, but, but to be able to, to reach beyond to Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Ecuador, Pakistan. Lord, use us. We love you. Thank you that you love us more. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.